Welcome back to Beyond Sunday School. Glad to have you with me this week. Uh, looks like I am on my own uh, for this week's edition of Beyond Sunday School as we continue to explore the background of the New Testament. Um, so uh, some things to just be aware of, to know kind of what's what's happening here. Uh, record live on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock via Zoom. And if you are interested in uh, being a part of that live recording, so you can interact, ask questions, engage in the conversation, I would love to have you join me. Uh, just reach out uh, via any social media channel that uh, you want to, and I will be sure to get you the Zoom link information. And uh, so we're, where are we at? What are we doing? Well, we are uh, exploring the background of the New Testament. And so right now, uh, this week, we are beginning our exploration of uh, kind of the religious background and the philosophical background of, of the New Testament next week. Uh, and really, probably we'll take two weeks uh, is my guess. Uh, exploring uh, the Jewish background of the New Testament, because there is a lot there. There really was uh, no single uh, Judaism uh, at, at the time. So uh, let's dive in and, and we'll get rolling. Uh, so let me pray and, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll roll. Heavenly Father, thanks for tonight. And uh, thank you for time to uh, take a look uh, into the historical background of the New Testament. I pray that as we do so, uh, this information would help us to study the scripture and be changed and not just learn more stuff. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, we spent some time looking at the social and economic world. Uh, this week, we are uh, looking at the religious world uh, the non-Jewish religious world of the first century. So uh, one of the things that uh, is interesting, uh, I don't know if uh, you know this is something that maybe you would know, maybe you wouldn't know, uh, but the Jewish world, that, that world there in the first century, um, the, the kind of the cultural milieu, right, that uh, the, the New Testament was born out of, uh, was probably uh, more diverse uh, than uh, than you might think. In some ways, it was probably more diverse uh, than even we are now. In a very real way, our culture now uh, is getting smaller, much more unified uh, than than what would have been experienced in that first century world. The influences uh, that were hitting home uh, as the New Testament was being written and was being lived out uh, is was diverse. It was pluralistic. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're not looking here uh, at a monolith, right? A cultural monolith. That is not what we have uh, as we spend time looking at the New Testament, as we spend time uh, studying the scriptures, we have to understand that the culture was diverse. It was full of many different ideas and assumptions and thoughts about the divine, about creation, um, 
about how to even practice religion, the role of the divine uh, in the world. Uh, it was it was diverse. Uh, there were tons of different perspectives, tons of different ideas. Uh, all of these things find their way into the New Testament and are often ways reflected uh, in in the New Testament scriptures, which also helps us to understand a little bit about why, uh, you know, we'll, we'll come to learn that these understanding this helps us understand why uh, the scriptures were written, written the way that they were, uh, some of the questions that were floating around. And, uh, and it really helps us to ground uh, our understanding of, of, of where the New Testament writers were coming from. So, uh, first, we have the, the Greek-Roman uh, pantheon, right? This, uh, this was kind of a, a pervasive uh, belief uh, throughout, just kind of the, the, general, the general populace, right? Uh, the Romans had their own, their own gods. Uh, the earliest religion, uh, kind of religion of, of Rome, the, the most primitive, was animism, uh, so kind of the idea of, you know, each, each farmer uh, would worship, you know, the gods of his own farm and fireside totally personified uh, for him, right? I mean, he was, uh, each, each farmer was kind of looking for their divine help, their divine in, their, uh, their personal God to help them. Uh, now, as, as Rome developed, uh, as Rome expanded, as Rome was more deeply influenced by uh, by Greek culture and Greek society, uh, what happened is you saw this kind of development of um, of the Roman pantheon, uh, which in a in a very real way mirrored the Greek pantheon. And so you have, you know, uh, you have Jupiter, uh, the god of the sky. Uh, you know, that, you know, Jupiter is tied to Zeus. Um, you have Juno, Jupiter's, uh, you know, Jupiter's wife uh, tied to Hera, Neptune with Poseidon, Pluto with Hades. Uh, it, it all kind of connects, right? They, there was just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of connection between those two cultures and Rome in particular found Greece to be kind of the height of, of culture, uh, which in a very real sense it was. And so uh, when they turned to religion, uh, the Roman gods and the Greek gods all kind of mirror and reflect one another. Uh, now, worship of the Greek pantheon, uh, you know, had really begun to decline by the time of Christ, uh, mostly, uh, mostly because the stories about the Greek gods uh, were just not helpful to people, right? Um, the Greek gods were constantly squabbling and fighting with one another, and they were pretty base in their morality and all this kind of stuff. They just kind of looked, um, gosh, I don't even know how you could, how you could say it. Um, but they looked too human. And, you know, as a result, they, people began to see 
that the gods were simply a reflection of, of those, of those human people who created them. And they were, they were being mocked and scorned by satirists um, and philosophers alike. Uh, they were poking holes uh, in, in all of this. Uh, Plato, you know, more than three centuries before Christ, you know, he said that uh, he, he made an argument that tales of the gods should not be taught to children because they would simply corrupt uh, their, their more, their morality. And, uh, you know, this was, this was kind of where, uh, the state of things were with, uh, you know, with, with the Greek pantheon. Now that being said, right. There were some city States where their local deity, um, was, was dominant, was kind of the dominant, religion. And so uh, certain cities and towns, you know, especially those that had uh, large temples to particular gods or goddesses, uh, were still very uh, um, passionate, let's say, for, for their god. They, they may not have um, been devout, but they were passionate in defense of, of their deity. Because they saw they saw this god or goddess as one who would protect their city, as one who would provide for their city. So, an example of this, you know, you can look at um, what happened with Paul uh, in in Ephesus, right? Uh, you know, he went he went there and preached the gospel, and and it caused all kinds of problems surrounding the temple of Artemis, uh, or Diana, uh, however you want to translate that. Uh, but you can check that story out in Acts chapter 19. And, uh, you know, this, the, the goddess was, was central, uh, economically to the city. And so when the gospel came in and people began to change their beliefs and began to, to, to slowly move away from, uh, from that temple structure, uh, it was a problem economically and a significant, significant issue. Uh, so, uh, so we have the Greek and Roman pantheon. Uh, then we also have emperor worship happening, right? Now, uh, the, the emperor worship, and we've talked about this before, was, one of, it was an aspect of religion that was super important because it created social cohesion uh, across the empire. It made it so that people could kind of have this identity of, all right, you have your local God, your local goddesses, your local religions, but we as Romans are going to worship the emperor. Now, prior to uh, Domitian, uh, the the emperors said, hey, I'm not, I'm not, don't deify me until after I'm gone. Uh, but Domitian said, no, I am God. I am the son of God. Let's roll. And so, you know, these, so there was some humility prior to Domitian, uh, but what was going on most, most strikingly, not so much in Rome itself, but in the provinces in the frontier towns uh, was this significant emperor worship 
uh, the empire cult uh, was was strong to create the social cohesion. And so the local governors, the Roman governors would fan those flames. They would encourage that or at the very least not discourage emperor worship because it created this sense of identity. It kind of helped people say, oh, I'm Roman. I identify this way. I, I identify with, with the emperor. I am a good Roman citizen. And so, you know, this was, this was a central part of especially uh, the way that the provincial people worshiped. Now, for the Christians, this was a huge problem because they would them and in, in the Jews in particular, the Christians and the Jews would not would not engage in emperor worship. Now, the Jews kind of got a pass. Uh, the, the Jewish the Jewish people kind of got a pass. Uh, they and that was that was smart and wise and strategic by uh, by Rome, right? They understood that the Jewish people. I uh, had this sense of not just ethnic identity, but that their ethnic identity was also tied to their religious identity, to their understanding of who they are was so deeply tied into their God. And some, you know, some conquering, uh, some conquerors challenged that and it created all kinds of problems, but the Romans were smart enough to say, okay, we're, uh, we're, we're not going to we're not going to challenge this belief. You, you Jewish people, you, you can continue to worship in your temple and you do not need to engage uh, in, in emperor worship. Now, the problem with the Christians is that they expanded well beyond the Jewish, you know, Jewish ethnicity and they Gentiles, Roman citizens were converting in, in, in mass to this new Christian faith. And when they did, they stopped participating in emperor worship, which caused all kinds of problems. And so when we start talking about, and you start looking historically at things like persecution, it was almost always tied to this lack of worship, this lack of emperor worship. But the persecution was very rarely uh, authored from Rome. It was very rarely a, a state-sponsored mass persecution. But it was persecution of neighbor to neighbor because the because the Christian neighbor would not participate in the civic worship in this civic religion of emperor worship, and uh, and, and so that was that was a huge huge problem. This was the root of so much of our um, of our understanding of 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 the persecutions in the first century, uh, and so. The way that uh, it could be said is that the emperor worship was the totalitarianism of the first century, and that it's that significant, and it played that big of a role, especially in the provincial areas. Now, uh, along with uh, along with the Greco-Roman pantheon, along with emperor worship, you also had uh, what was known as the mystery religions that were. Uh, kind of everywhere. They were small. They were, uh, but they were pervasive. And there was all kinds of different flavors of these mystery religions. These were very uh, kind of personal faith religions, and they were uh, they were brought about 
uh, you know, from, from the East, they were brought from the North. Uh, these, these mystery religions or these mystery cults really sought to provide people with a personal faith, a deeply intimate, individualistic faith. And they were centered around uh, God, a God who died and, and resuscitated, and who rose again. Uh, they all had ritual formulas, um, you know, of ways to experience God. And, and so you see, uh, you, you see the influence uh, of, you know, of, you see, you see kind of this, these similar patterns, these similar themes uh, that we see in New Testament Christianity, right? Now, some of the, uh, some of the mystery religions uh, were, uh, you know, uh, were known as the Illusionians, uh, and these, these came from Greece and had been around for a long time. You had the cult of Sybil. Um, she came, this, this cult, this mystery religion came from Asia. You had Isis and Osiris from Egypt. You had Mithraism from Persia. Uh, you had the cult of Dionysius. Uh, these were all mystery religions, uh, all built kind of around this dying and rising God in the goal of knowing them, of connecting to them, uh, was to, was, was to gain immortality and to experience this personal faith. The other thing that was, uh, consistent and routine around all of them was, uh, this reality that, you know, to be a part of them was to be a part of a close knit brotherhood where everyone was on the same footing. Everyone, master, slave, rich, poor, high, low, didn't matter. Uh, there was there was an there was a, an egalitarianism to these mystery religions, and so uh, we don't see anything necessarily clearly uh, dealing with these in the New Testament. Uh, however, some scholars think that when Paul talks about uh, the worship of angels in Coloss that he is that he is referring uh, to to the mystery religions. Uh, but I think I think the important thing here is is seeing that uh, the idea of a dying and rising God was was not necessarily new. The concept uh, was common to human religion. Uh, before the coming of Christ. Now, for some, uh, they look at that and say, oh, well, this is so Christianity is nothing more than um, just another one of these mystery religions that happen to get more popular. Perhaps. Uh, however, I, I kind of settle more into uh, C.S. Lewis uh, and, and his kind of his argument on this was if God, if God is God, then I would expect to see uh, echoes of the way God does things throughout human history, because we are created in the image of God. And so there is something in us that harkens back to and ties back into the deep truths of who God is and how he is at work in the world. Uh, and, and I think that's what we see reflected here in, uh, in these mystery religions. We see that, uh, that story beginning to break forth. Uh, along along with 
you know, uh, those, those sects you have, uh, and you also have the worship of the occult, right? Um, you know, this kind of superstitious, uh, belief, uh, you know, things, you know, where, where they didn't have answers. And so they began to, to make up, you know, they, 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 they made up things. They tried to observe what was happening in the world and, you know, took, um, took connections that they saw and said, well, this happened one time, therefore this must happen another time. And, and, and they kind of begin to build, uh, this idea of, of what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, pretty much everybody, um, you know, most of the world, most people in the world understood the world uh, was, you know, inhabited by spirits and demons and uh, that in the belief by so many was that they could be controlled and invoked and called upon to do what, what needed to be done. Um, I mean, the, there was a wide belief uh, in magic uh, at this time. Now, interestingly, what we find is that uh, Jews more than Gentiles were, uh, more interested in magic and that kind of thing. So, um, this is not, this is not just some, you know, quote unquote pagan belief. Uh, but, but we see, we see this throughout. Yeah. We see this in the story of acts, right? Uh, we see it in, in acts chapter eight and acts chapter 13. Uh, we see this in, uh, you know, you know, kind of, again, struggling with, uh, you know, with, with Ephesus in Acts 19. Um, so these were, these were very real issues, uh, you know, dealing with demonic forces uh, and, you know, uh, they, they were, they were forbidden um, throughout the old and new Testament. So you can check out Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. You can check out Micah 5, 12. You can check out first Corinthians 10, 20 and 21 uh, and, and see, you can see some of these things. Uh, so there was, uh, there's just a, there's just a reality of, uh, of a sense of, of the divine of the spiritual realm uh, that was pervasive at this time. So, uh, so you can see that the religious world was, uh, was pluralistic. It was there were so many different religious movements and things happening. Uh, during the first century. Now, the other thing that uh, that was going on is you had uh, you know you had significant philosophical uh, arguments uh, being developed or being rediscovered in the first century, and uh, this was this was a pretty significant time in the world where Rome was taking. Uh, the philosophical uh, writings and libraries of Greek and bringing them into Latin and, and really kind of rejuvenating, uh, you know, good, you know, some philosophy and thinking and, and that kind of stuff. And so uh, what were the, what were kind of the, the, the key worldviews that were floating around? We need to understand that because we will see, again, see them reflected uh, in the New Testament. Well, first you had Platonism, uh, which was founded. This is a the philosophical school founded by Plato uh, in Athens, and uh, what kind of what he understood in summary the, the big argument, the big idea of Platonism, uh, is that the real world 
is simply a reflection. Um, the real world is, is the world of ideas and the experienced world that, that we live in is a reflection of the real. So for instance, uh, there is, he, he argued for something called forms, right? So you have uh, a chair, right? The idea of a chair, there is a perfect chair. None of us can see it. None of us can access it, but every chair that we make is simply a reflection of that singular, perfect, uh, that singular, perfect form of a chair, same with dogs or people or anything else. And so, um, so what, so what was good, ultimately the ultimate good is the form. It's the idea, the, uh, and it, it's not that the other things are, are bad. They're just not good. And, and so what happens naturally within the context of Platonism is the development of dualism. Uh, so you kind of have, uh, you know, you begin to get into these very clear black, white, good, bad, the split happens. And, and so for the Platonist, knowledge is power. Knowledge is salvation. Uh, the, the worst thing you can be is ignorant. Uh, Plato would have argued uh, that, that ignorance is sin. And so what you wanted to do was uh, this constant pursuit of of knowledge. Now, while while Platonism was uh, popular amongst the learned, it did not it did not catch on with uh, kind of the common man, right? It, it wasn't this wasn't an idea that was necessarily embraced by you know the the woodworker, or the the mason, or the fisherman. Now, what one of the other things that kind of develops out of, out of Platonism uh, is something called uh, Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is, is really Platonism gone wild. For Gnosticism, the idea here is that you wanted to pursue a secret knowledge. And if you had the keys to this knowledge, then you would have the keys to salvation. And the important things to note within Gnosticism is, is an ever-increasing dualism, all matter, all things that you can touch, taste, see, feel are bad, evil, fallen, wrong. What was good was the spiritual realm. And so this created all kinds, all kinds of conflicts and problems. And, uh, you know, we, 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 the, the dualism of of seeing matter in the physical world is all bad um, and evil uh, created, uh, you know, strict, uh, strict control. Like you wanted to fight against all appetites, all urges. Um, you wanted to suppress everything. Uh, there was, there's a lot of asceticism that came out of Gnosticism. Uh, now, do we necessarily see this Gnosticism in its fullness really, really took root uh, in this, you know, late, late first century, early second century, probably after uh, the New Testament was, was written. However, it's kind of early stage Gnosticism was, 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 was beginning to, to develop. And we can probably see this uh, in uh, Paul writing in Colossians chapter two. Some make the argument that he's, that he's talking here 
uh, to early Gnostics, uh, where he talks about, you know, handle not, you know, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, was, was that direct to Gnosticism? Maybe, uh, probably at least an early form of it. And we can see, we can see how it, how it grows and develops. Now, uh, the next kind of stage or the, the, the next philosophical idea uh, that was floating around uh, is Neoplate, Neoplatonism. And uh, this, this really begins to uh, come about a little bit later, but it is very, it is very religious. It, it takes Platonism to a religious place. And so I'm going to quote, um, I'm going to quote Tenney, Merrill Tenney here. He says, Neoplatonism was, was distinctly a religious philosophy based on the Platonic dualism of the universal ideal and the particular thing, and the Persian dualism of light and darkness. In Neoplatonism, the spirit was considered to be inevitably good and the body inherently evil. Salvation consisted in eliminating completely all bodily desires as one gradually retreated from the life dependent on sensation and moved toward the life of the spirit, which would finally be achieved at death. Then the body's evil influence would cease and true spiritual life would, life would blossom forth. So you can see how, uh, you can see how this began to uh, float into, into Christianity, into early Christianity uh, at, you know, as, as this was developed. Um, you can see the influences of this, uh, especially uh, in kind of that that third, fourth century Christianity uh, that we'll get to at some point. Uh, and uh, the next next philosophical idea that's floating around uh, is Epicureanism, and uh, you know he he was uh, he was a materialist. Uh, Epicurus uh, was the founder, another Athenian. And uh, he, this, this idea, this school was, was developed um, about 306 BC. And so he taught uh, that the world began in a shower of atoms, some of which by pure chance moved, uh, you know, and collided with others. And these collisions, pro collisions produced other collisions until finally the ensuing movement brought into being the present universe. Uh, and so you know, he was, he was very much a materialist and I, uh, you know, it was all focused on the mind. It was, uh, you know, uh, it was this, it was an anti-religious uh, philosophy. And so it appealed, uh, Tenney says uh, that Epicureanism was popular because it did not indulge in indulge in much abstract reasoning. It appealed to emotional considerations for it supplied a philosophic justification for doing what most people do anyway, making pleasure the chief goal of life. This was the whole center of, of Epicureanism was feel good uh, because we're just matter and there's nothing else. Uh, next, next idea that's been floating around is stoicism. And a lot of people see a lot of stoic uh, ideas uh, connected to the New Testament, particularly Paul. Uh, this was founded by Zeno, a uh, native of Cyprus, uh, in three, uh, you know, somewhere, uh, somewhere around, you know, probably around 200 
BC, somewhere in there. And uh, so, or 300, 300 BC, I should say. Uh, so he's, you know, the, the, process, the world process. Uh, he, he didn't recognize a, a, a God in the way that we would in the Bible, uh, but he taught that the universe was controlled by an absolute reason. Uh, so there's kind of this, this divine will uh, that was, that was imminent and, and everywhere. And that world, the world process is governed not by chance, but by a progressive purpose. And so he wanted, he kind of argued uh, for uh, the universe to be accepted, uh, to not, you know, that we should not try to change uh, the world. It was very fatalistic. And, uh, and this, you know, and, and it was a, and as a result, there was a high sense of morality. And so this very structured, linear uh, kind of way of looking at the world appealed to the Roman mind. This, so Stoicism uh, was very virtuous. Uh, it was virtue centered uh, because, you know, you have this this imminent divine reason, uh, this absolute reason that was, that had kind of set things in motion. And so you wanted to, you wanted to be the kind of person, uh, you know, who is, who's a part of, of, of something of a larger good. You wanted to be on the good side of things. And uh, so, so even though it was very virtuous, uh, you know, it was, it was not, it was not Christianity. Uh, the idea of um, of needing to have a God die for you and forgive you of sin uh, just didn't it didn't compute in the Stoic mind because uh, that was something that you could that you would do on your own through virtuous living and uh, so so yeah so those those were kind of the the big ones uh, that were that were floating around this is kind of the big cultural milieu that was hanging out, uh, in, in the first century. So, so there's a lot happening. Uh, there is, there's a lot going on in the mind and thoughts, uh, in the, in the cultural world of, of the first century. And, uh, and, and so next week we will spend some time looking at the Jewish world and looking at how, uh, the various types of Judaism and how they uh, laid some of the groundwork and background for what we see in the New Testament and the development of early Christianity. All right. Um, just want to remind you again uh, that we record this uh, live Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. And if you would like to be a part of that, please let me know. Hit me up on any of my social media accounts and I will be sure to get you the Zoom link. Uh, but until next week, Love well, my friends.